Hi everyone, Laszlo here. Before we get started with today's episode, I'm excited to announce the launch of my new audio courses covering the history of Chinese philosophy. If you've ever been curious about Chinese philosophy and want to develop a comprehensive understanding or be able to explain to your family or colleagues the differences between Confucianism and Taoism or What's in the Book of Changes, one of the most widely published books in the world, these courses are for you. I cordially invite you to go to avid.fm slash Laszlo to take a look. I'll have this link in the show notes. My thanks to all of you, and I hope you'll enjoy these courses. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Laszlo Montgomery, and welcome to the China History Podcast. Let's get right into it. The original idea I had for this episode was to present a simple summary of all the most significant scientific achievements credited to China and all the inventions and discoveries they gifted to the world. I have this book I bought a long time ago called The Genius of China by Robert Temple. The foreword was written by the very respected China Hand and scholar Dr. Joseph Needham. He's considered, hands down, the greatest Western scholar of the history of scientific development in China. Dr. Needham's magnum opus is called Science and Civilization in China, 27 volumes and still growing, even after his death in 1995. I featured the life of Joseph Needham in a two-part series that was CHP episodes 155 and 156. If you want to hear about this great sinologist's epic story, go check those two out. I thought, rather than trying to present a topic that could go on forever, seemingly, why not focus instead on the four great inventions, or Sida Faming? Then, after I introduce the four great inventions, I'll quickly run through a list of other notable Chinese inventions and discoveries from ancient times that you might find interesting. The term four great inventions, as designated by Dr. Needham, were the discovery of the compass, gunpowder, paper, and printing. Francis Bacon, one of my heroes from history, said of three of the four inventions that, quote, they have done more than anything else to transform completely the modern world and mark it off from antiquity in the Middle Ages, end quote. Let me quote from his 1620 work, Novum Organum, quote, Again, we should notice the force, effect, and consequences of inventions, which are nowhere more conspicuous than in those three which were unknown to the ancients, namely, printing, gunpowder, and the compass. For these three have changed the appearance and state of the whole world, first in literature, then in warfare, and lastly in navigation, and innumerable changes have been thence derived, so that no empire, sect, or star appears to have exercised a greater power and influence on human affairs than these three mechanical discoveries. End quote. Lord Bacon died completely unaware in 1626 that all three of these inventions came from China. Karl Marx said of these same three inventions that, quote, Gunpowder, the compass, and the printing press were the three great inventions which ushered in bourgeois society. Gunpowder blew up the knightly class, the compass discovered the world market and founded the colonies, and the printing press was the instrument of Protestantism and the regeneration of science in general. End quote. 
Both Lord Bacon and Marx mention only three of the four great inventions. They didn't include papermaking. I can only assume that while paper was a quantum leap from carving language on tortoise shells, clay tablets, papyrus, and bamboo, it didn't quite rise to the level of the other three. These sudafaming, su means four, da means great, and invention is faming, they were and remain a source of great pride for many Chinese. These four great inventions are celebrated in China not only for their historical significance, but probably most of all as a clear and proven historical record attesting to ancient China's achievements in science and technology relative to the West. So let's look at the four great inventions one by one. We'll start with the compass back in the 4th century BCE. This was the time of Alexander the Great in the West. Dr. Needham established that Europe acquired the compass from the Chinese. The compass is mentioned for the first time in the West in the year 1190 by the English scholar Alexander of Neckham. In his De Naturis Rerum, he wrote, quote, The sailors, moreover, as they sail over the sea, when in cloudy weather they can no longer profit by the light of the sun, or when the world is wrapped up in darkness of the shades of night, and they are ignorant to what point of the compass their ship's course is directed, they touch the magnet with a needle. This then whirls round in a circle until, when the motion ceases, its point looks direct to the north. End quote. When Alexander of Neckham wrote about this, it was already an established tool of Western navigators, but probably not for too long. The Arabs, with their strategic geographic location at the crossroads between East and West, were not instrumental in passing this invention to the West like they did with papermaking. The compass isn't even mentioned in Arabic writings until 1232. Chinese compasses pointed south. In fact, in Mandarin, these were called jirnan. Jir means to point, and nan means south. They were probably made from lodestone, a type of magnetite that naturally aligns itself with the Earth's magnetic field. The earliest compasses used a kind of, well, for lack of a better description, it looks like a ladle in which the handle serves as a needle or pointer that pointed to the south. It said this ladle-type compass is the oldest known instrument in the world. It didn't look like a compass at all and wasn't functional for navigation. In looking at a photo of one, it's hard to tell whether it's a compass or a bowl of soup. This soup-ladle-looking device, made from lodestone, rested on a square, smooth plate made from bronze. There was a circular, smooth surface upon which the spoon rested on, and the circle represented heaven. The bronze plate itself was square, which represented earth. The handle of the spoon always pointed to the south. The ladle is thought to represent the Big Dipper, or Great Bear constellation. And the four sides of the bronze plate were inscribed with the four directions. The first mention of actually using a needle instead of some other less accurate method of pointing out the direction, you know, like these ladles, was around 70 to 80 CE, the Han Dynasty. By the 11th century, compasses were standard fear on the high seas. In the Song Dynasty, the Leonardo da Vinci of his time, Shan Kuo, a great polymath and one of China's most renowned scientists, first described the floating compass in his work, the Dreampool Essays, 
or Mengxi Bitan, in 1088. This was during the Northern Song Dynasty. And then, as I said, Alexander of Neckham described this again about a century later in 1187. Beginning with this compass, and then between the 12th and 14th centuries, there will be a number of other discoveries that will grease the wheels to usher in the great age of Western exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries. All right, enough about the compass. Let's look at gunpowder next. There are quite a few scientists that say most likely the chemical composition for gunpowder came from Chinese alchemists looking for an elixir of immortality. Before cryogenics and living a regimented, healthy lifestyle became viable options, those who could afford it tried to find shortcuts to eternal life in the form of these elixirs. Now, how's that for irony? A substance that was painstakingly studied and developed for immortality instead turned out to be an ingredient that would end up killing as many people as it did over the next ten centuries. You don't hear anything about gunpowder in the West until the late 12th century. By this time, the Chinese had already perfected it from its crudest state during the 9th century CE. Now, between then and the time the West discovered gunpowder... The Chinese were already using cannon and the barrel gun. By the 2nd century, there are writings that mention something that was probably gunpowder in describing fireworks. By the 4th century, for sure, the Chinese knew what gunpowder was, but they were still trying to figure out a few apps that could apply this energy. Gunpowder really started to become a force to reckon with in a battle around the end of the Tang Dynasty in the 10th century. The Earliest weapons were crude, glorified bottle rockets and later rocks that were used as projectiles shot out of a hollowed-out bamboo device. This is before Europeans even knew what it was or that it existed. To make gunpowder, as any terrorist might tell you, you needed three ingredients. Most important was saltpeter. Now those with a working knowledge of chemistry know it as potassium nitrate. It's the explosive element of gunpowder. The more saltpeter you used, the bigger the bang. The next ingredient is sulfur. What does the sulfur do? It lowers the ignition temperature to 250 degrees Celsius, which facilitates easier combustion. And on combustion, this raises the fusion point of the saltpeter to 335 degrees Celsius. The third ingredient is charcoal. The charcoal and sulfur serve as the fuels, and the saltpeter is the oxidizer. These clever ancient Chinese, through trial and error, figured the formula was 15 parts saltpeter, 3 parts charcoal, and 2 parts sulfur. A landmark year for gunpowder was in 1040, when it was mentioned in the Wu Jingzong Yao by Song Dynasty scholar Zheng Gongliang. The Wu Jingzong Yao was the first book in history to record the formulas for gunpowder as containing saltpeter, sulfur, and charcoal, along with various other ingredients. This work, known in English as the Complete Essentials for the Military Classics in the 11th century, was the go-to source for all things related to military science, including strategy and weaponry. Now, being a work of military science, the Wu Jingzong Yao presented various gunpowder-based weapons used during the Song Dynasty, mostly all of the cannonball type. In the 12th and 13th centuries, mostly thanks to the Mongols, the secrets of gunpowder first spread to the Arab countries. 
then to Greece, then other European countries, and finally all over the world. Let's touch on printing. It all started with the Babylonians and Sumerians who carved these seals. These could be seen as the forerunner of woodblock carving that arose in China around the 7th century CE. Necessity, always being the mother of invention, the Chinese needed to develop ways to mass-produce written material on paper. Stone rubbing was one way. Text would be carved into stone or bronze or some other substrate. It's just like they used to do with those old credit card machines before the magnetic stripe became part of our daily life. You formed an impression by the friction created when rubbing the paper surface with charcoal or some other material. A landmark time period might be between 704 and 751 during the Tang. This is considered the time period that produced the earliest printed text in the world. It was a Buddhist charm scroll called the Dharani Sutra, printed in China that made its way to Korea and was discovered in 1966 and is preserved today in the Bulguksa Temple in Gyeongju in the southeast of the Korean peninsula. Just as Bibles later on would drive the book printing business, it was the Buddhists who really drove the early development of printing. They needed a quick and easy way to print their various sacred texts and to propagate these wherever they traveled. The first complete printed book is thought to be the Buddhist Diamond Sutra, the Jin Gang Jing, printed in the year 868 and discovered by Sir Oral Stein in 1907. You could see it preserved in pristine condition at the British Museum. It consists of a scroll 17 and a half feet long and 10 and a half inches wide and contains the complete text of a Sanskrit work translated into Chinese. I saw it at a private showing in 2016 when the local Getty Museum ran this exhibit on the treasures of Dunhuang. This book predated the Gutenberg Bible by 587 years. We know the Diamond Sutra was printed in the year 868 because it's inscribed with the words, On the fifteenth day of the fourth moon of the ninth year of the Xiantong era of the Tang Yizong Emperor. We, of course, have a matrix that shows us for every single era name of every single emperor going back to the first one. There's a corresponding year in our Gregorian calendar. In the 9th century, the China printing industry was booming. There were print runs in the thousands, even hundreds of thousands, and even one million copies of a sutra printed in Japan after the Chinese Buddhists introduced the technology there. You even had personalized calendars back then. So we have the Buddhists, I guess, to thank for the earliest development of printing. However, this significant invention did not make as great an impact in China compared to the way Gutenberg's movable type of the 1450s revolutionized the Western world. It's believed this was due to the fact that the individual Chinese characters used were so many, while the English language only needed 26 letters. It was much easier to manipulate the latter on a printing press than sorting through the most common three to 5,000 Chinese characters. Nevertheless, commercial printing in ancient China changed the way people reproduce their printed materials. Printing went from China to Korea first, around the year 700. 
These were the days of block printing. The blocks were made from various woods. Oh, by the way, the Chinese were also the first to print in multicolor. Yeah, to prevent counterfeiting, paper money was printed in three colors. That was a pretty high bar back then to leap over. Not even the North Koreans could beat that three-color system. This was in 1107. The real milestone in the world of printing were the years between 1041 and 1048. Let me quote what Shan Kuo said in the Dream Pool Essays. Quote, During the reign of Qing Li, Bi Sheng, a man of unofficial position, made movable type. His method was as follows. He took a stick of clay and cut it in characters as thin as the edge of a coin. Each character formed, as it were, a single type. He baked them in fire to make them hard. He had previously prepared an iron plate, and he covered his plate with a mixture of pine resin, wax, and paper ashes. When he wished to print, he took an iron frame and set it on the iron plate. In this, he placed the types set close together. When the frame was full, the whole made one single block of type. End quote. The use of wooden type was perfected 250 years later, after Bi Sheng's time. That leaves the fourth of the Sida Fan being paper. This was the invention that Lord Bacon left off his list of the three inventions that changed the world. Paper was invented during the 2nd century BCE. A paper sample made from rags was discovered in Gansu province and was dated to 150 BCE. Today's paper was nothing like the paper that came out of China back then. Today's paper that we use comes from basically wood pulp, mostly from Canada, Finland, Chile, or other countries where you have lots of trees. The oldest surviving piece of paper in the world was discovered by archaeologists in 1957 in a tomb near Xi'an. It's a 10-centimeter square sheet and can be dated precisely between the years... 140 and 87 BCE. This sample, and others like it from a similar time, were thick, coarse, and uneven in texture. The earliest paper is made from pounded and disintegrated hemp fibers. It was hardly satisfactory for writing, but you have to start somewhere. Actually, paper's first uses were not for printing, but for clothing, wrapping, uh, toilet paper, even the earliest form of what we know today is Kleenex. Paper made from pounded bark of the mulberry tree was first used as clothing from about the 2nd century BCE onwards. We know from writings from the 9th century that this tough, pounded bark paper was also used as military armor. As for the sanitary uses of paper, in 1393, during the early Ming Dynasty, the Bureau of Imperial Supplies manufactured 720,000 sheets of toilet paper, measuring two feet by three feet each. This supplied the imperial court for one year. Now, I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm assuming they didn't need the whole six-square-foot sheet for each use. Also, 15,000 special sheets of toilet tissue, three inches square, perfumed and especially soft were prepared for exclusive use by the imperial family. It was a eunuch from the eastern Han dynasty, Tsai Lun, who invented a more developed art of papermaking using plant fibers, rags, and fishnet as raw materials. 
The first batch, which was supervised by Tai Lun himself, was presented to the Han Emperor in 105 AD. It so delighted the emperor that he named the material as Marquis Tsai's paper. So Tsai Lun was highly regarded in Chinese history as paper's discoverer. No one knows for sure if he did it himself, or with the collaboration of others, or not at all. The technique of papermaking was exported to Korea in about 384. A Korean monk then took this skill with him to Japan in 610. Then later on, during a war between the Tang Dynasty and the Arab Empire, the Arabs captured some Tang Dynasty soldiers and papermakers at the Battle of Samarkand in 712. And this led to a paper factory being set up by the Arabs, and they jealously guarded their papermaking secret from the Europeans. All the European traders of that age could do was buy the finished paper. Around the end of the 8th century, though, paper slowly began to make its way into Europe. The first manufacturer of paper in the West dates from the 12th century, and it was until the 13th century that an Italian paper industry was in operation. This is a good 1,500 years after its invention in China. So, those, my friends, were the Sita Faming, the four great inventions as first mentioned by the great polymath, sinologist, and one of the great eccentrics of his time, Dr. Joseph Needham. Now for the rest of this episode, I'll just comb through Robert Temple's book and pick out some of the more interesting inventions brought to us by the Chinese. First is lacquer. Didn't make it to the big four, but it was a great invention all the same. The Chinese were using lacquer by the 13th century BCE. And this material is the oldest invention named in Robert Temple's book. Dr. Needham called lacquer, quote, the most ancient industrial plastic known to man, end quote. It has been continually in use by humankind around the world for 3,000 years, and it all began in China. The Chinese also brought us the agricultural innovation of row cultivation and intensive hoeing. Even the novice gardener knows that growing crops in rows and taking care to weed them all the time and keeping the garden organized is a good thing. But European farmers weren't practicing this idea until the 18th century when English agricultural pioneer Jethro Tull preached about the benefits of weeding and turning the soil constantly. This was more than 200 years before Aqualung came out. The Chinese farmers were already doing this at least by the 6th century BCE. 2,200 years before the West caught on to what is today such an obvious necessity. The Scandinavians used cast iron as early as the 800s, and it was not widely available in Europe prior to 1380. But China had been using cast iron since the 4th century BCE, and the Chinese were the first to produce steel from cast iron about 200 years later in the 2nd century BCE. The Bessemer steel process, patented in 1856, ultimately has the Chinese to thank. The first suspension bridge, a flat roadway suspended from cables, was invented in China in the first century. Believe it or not, the wheelbarrow did not exist in Europe until the 11th or 12th centuries. But it was a well-known tool in China as early as the first century BCE. 
the oldest surviving picture of a wheelbarrow, dates from about the year 100. The Chinese are also credited with the fishing reel in the 3rd century. No representation of the fishing reel can be found in the West before 1651. Chinese were also the inventors of the stirrup, another practical device that had been unknown to all the great armies going back to the ancient Greeks, the Persians, Romans, Assyrians, Egyptians. No stirrups. Back in the day, you held onto the horse's mane to support yourself. The Chinese got smart in the 3rd or 4th century of the Common Era, probably observing this useful invention from the nomads of the steppes. In any case, stirrups didn't catch on in the West until the Middle Ages, and now anyone who has ever galloped on horseback might wonder how mounted soldiers put up with not having them for as long as they did. Porcelain, of course, what we also refer to as China, with a small c, originated in China anywhere between the 1st and 3rd centuries. The Song Dynasty, from 960 to 1279, saw what many call the apex of China's porcelain-making. The Chinese had that kaolinite, or gaoling clay, that was perfect for making porcelain. It would take until 1709 before Johann Friedrich Bertiger became the first in the West to discover how to make porcelain, like the Chinese did it. The umbrella came from China around the end of the 4th century. In the year 577, China brought us matches. We all know China gave us paper money around the 9th century. I already mentioned that one. The decimal system was in use as early as the 14th century BCE, during the Shang period in China. Credit is also given to Hindu mathematicians in the early centuries of the Common Era for their contribution to decimals and their application in everyday life. After paper was invented... People first flew kites in China in the 4th and 5th century BCE. It isn't even mentioned in Europe until 1589 by the scientist, polymath, and universal man Giambattista della Porta in Natural Magic, where he talked about a flying sail. The idea of a parachute first came to Leonardo da Vinci, and he left drawings of them in his sketchbooks from the great China historian Sima Qian, We know parachutes went back as far as the 2nd century BCE. In the 1st century, China brought us the rudder. The Chinese invented, developed, and perfected tuned bells long before anyone else. This was around the 6th century BCE. The crossbow came from China. It was invented around the 4th century BCE and served as the weapon of choice for the Chinese for 2,000 years. About five years ago in Qinghai province, next door to Gansu, all the way out in the wilds of western China, it was discovered that noodles came from China after a 4,000-year-old archaeological site was discovered there. The earliest silk is dated to 3630 BCE, and tea, add that one to the list as well. Legend has it that the mythical god Shunnong, the divine farmer, the god of agricultural, and a whole lot more, discovered tea in 2737 BCE. The secrets of silk, tea, and porcelain were kept under wraps by the Chinese for thousands of years and were among the icons that defined them in the eyes of the inhabitants of the world. 
If you'd like to hear more about the history of tea, go ahead and check out CHP episodes 140 to 149 on the history of Chinese tea. This 10-part series will tell you everything you wanted to know about the history and development of tea in China. Well, I could go on and on. The list keeps going. But the ones I mentioned are what I thought might be of interest to you. You can read the massive work about the history of science and technology in China, written by Dr. Joseph Needham, if you can't get enough. As I said, there's 27 volumes. Or may I suggest, you can just go listen to my two-part series on Needham's life. He was quite a character. The Four Great Inventions are definitely a 24-karat badge that Chinese wear proudly and guarantees them lifelong membership among the greatest ancient civilizations on planet Earth. So that's about it. Just a little introduction to the genius of China, as Robert Temple called his book about the 3,000-year history of science, discovery, and invention in China. Printing, paper, gunpowder, and the compass. The Four Great Inventions, ladies and gentlemen. Let me offer you my deepest thanks for listening and checking out the China History Podcast, also available on YouTube and SoundCloud and every podcast app in the Apple and Android stores that will stoop to let me on their platform. Thanks again, everyone. This is Laszlo Montgomery coming to you from the city of Los Angeles in the Golden State. Think about coming back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.